Tonight we're actually going to start in an interesting way with a, uh, it's a hymn that we, I don't think we've sung in RUF this year, so I didn't necessarily want us to try to sing it. I thought um, it would be enough just to speak it as a poem, and so it's going to be up there, right? I think we have it. Um, so we have both the, um, the scripture we're going to look at, and then we have kind of a poetical setting of some of what we're going to look at tonight. You know, John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, one of the interesting things, he preached in a community, Olney, it's a little town in England, made up mostly of illiterate lace workers, um, who often, because government policies would change, they would be plunged into poverty, you know, depending on the tariff laws, and then, you know, would be doing okay again. And Anyway, um, often he would take his text for his sermon, whatever passage he was going to preach on, and would turn it, uh, into a hymn, and then found that it was more memorable to people if he actually preached the stanzas of the hymn. Um, I'm not going to preach the stanzas of the hymn, but I think the hymn writer Ann Steele really captures what's going on here as Jesus stands before Pilate and um, as he goes to the cross. But first we'll see the way the Gospel of John tells the story. It's a long section, but it's a great story. And it really is the central story of the Christian faith. If you want to understand who the real Jesus is, ultimately, you have to look at the events. In Christianity, the things that Jesus says, the things that Jesus does are all pointing to this, the cross and the resurrection. Resurrection we'll talk about next week. So this is the key story. And there's a lot here I can only just uh, point out, but... We're going to dig into a good section of Scripture here. So, starting at John chapter 18, verse 28. This is God's Word. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, who was the head of the, of the priests, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. That was the Jewish festival, and they needed to be ceremonially clean to be able to do that. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Hey, Max, you want to close that door? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. 
And with this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Jesus said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a sign prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but write instead that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there, 
And the disciple whom he loved, that's John, the one writing, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple, John himself, took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony. This is John himself. He's the man. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I know that's a long section of Scripture. But it's, it's fascinating to go through this story and see what all of the Gospels and really what our whole semester has been leading up to. Now, I like the way Ann Steele says it in this hymn. And we'll read this. I think you have this up there, right? Yes. Now, Oh, Love Incomprehensible, that's uh, actually from a guy named Augustus Toplady who wrote... Um, Rock of Ages. But I really want you to look at verse 1. This is really what Jonathan covered last week. The Garden of Gethsemane. What pain, what soul-oppressing pain the great Redeemer bore, while bloody sweat like drops of rain distilled from every pore. Arraigned at Pilate's shameful bar, unparalleled disgrace, See spotless innocence appear in guilt's detested place. The spotless Savior lived for me and died upon the mount. The obedience of His life and death is placed to my account. Tis finished now, aloud He cries. No more the law requires. And now, amazing sacrifice, the Lord of life expires. On Thee alone my hope relies. Beneath Thy cross I fall. My Lord, my life, my sacrifice, my Savior, and my all. And Augustus Toplady says about this event, the crucifixion, O love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me, the judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. Only in the Gospel do judges suffer death to set their prisoners free. In some ways, this is a story that baffled the people that were there. Do you understand that? It's hard for us to enter into that because you've heard this story if you've been around Christians or you've been around Christianity. Probably if you've even grown up in America, you've heard the basic idea that Christians believe Jesus was crucified and that that was significant. 
But for the people that were there, they did not understand what was going on. All they knew is all of their hope and their whole life was falling apart. But later, as they reflected, they began to understand what was going on. And I love how in this section that we read, John keeps saying, this happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. If you look through all of John's Gospel from chapter 1 to the very end, there are various places where that little phrase appears. But as you get to the cross, it happens like every five or six verses. The only way that John and the other disciples, the early Christians, could make sense of what we're looking at tonight is by going back and looking at the Scriptures and saying, ah, this was the missing piece of the puzzle. Scriptures that we didn't know what to make of them all make sense now. But at the time, this was utterly baffling. Why Jesus, the Messiah, was being put to death by his own people. Let's, take, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dig into this story. Lord, we do ask that you come and you meet us now. Send your Spirit. Help us to behold with wonder the wonders that are here contained in this section of your Holy Scripture. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we're going to look at. Arraigned at Pilate's impious bar. Unparalleled disgrace. The first thing to notice about this story and what's going on is this shouldn't be happening. Jesus does not deserve to be here. The charges are trumped up charges. And as John tells the story, he points out all kinds of kind of ironies, people saying things that they don't even understand the full significance of what they're saying. But the first thing we see is that this is disgraceful. Unparalleled disgrace. For Jesus to be standing before Pilate. Jesus, the King of all creation. The One by whom and for whom and through whom all things were made is now answering, having to answer to a petty Roman power monger with no concern for justice. This one who came to live and die that justice would come has to bear the disgrace, the humiliation of answering to a judge that could care less about justice. An irony abounds here. The Jewish leaders are concerned about ceremonial uncleanness. They want to be able to eat the Passover meal the next day. But my gosh, they're doing one of the worst things that's ever happened. Putting the innocent Son of God to death. The true Passover lamb. They're concerned about being ceremonial clean so they can eat the Passover meal. The Passover lamb is right in front of them. The one to whom that whole meal, the idea of God delivering His people is contained in the Passover. Here is the Passover. It's happening before their very eyes, but they don't see it. Cowardness abounds too. They don't even have the courage to name the charges. You see that in verse 29? Pilate says, what charges are you bringing? And they just say, well, we wouldn't bring him to you if he wasn't a criminal. 
They don't even have the courage to say what the charges are. But they're frustrated. The Jews are frustrated. And Pilate gets his little digs in too. This is geopolitical maneuvering going on in this passage. You see, the Jews did not have the freedom to crucify someone. And it rankled them because this man, they felt, deserved to die because he's blasphemed. He claimed to be God. Now there are a lot of people that read the Gospel and say, Jesus never claimed to be God. The people that understood the culture and the religious background said he claimed to be God. They got it. They understood it. Okay, But even though they believe that he's committed high treason, Pilate knows that they can't do a darn thing about it unless he lets them. And so he says to them, why don't you take him and crucify him? Knowing very well that they can't do that. The Jews wish they could kill him themselves, but they can't. Now Pilate is not afraid of the Jews. Throughout this passage, he mocks them. He writes, this is the king of the Jews on a sign, puts it on the cross, and they object, and they say, no, no, don't write that. That's offensive to us. He says, I could care less that it's offensive to you. What I've written, I've written. He loves to brandish his power, but he is afraid of two things. I'll just point these out. He's afraid of physical power. When Jesus, when it becomes clear to Pilate that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God, that happens in chapter 19, verse 7. It says that Pilate was even more afraid. Why? Well, Son of God, in his understanding, means a man of power, of some sort of divine power. And he's worried. I've had this guy flogged, and he might actually have some kind of supernatural power of some sort. Oh, uh-oh. <laughs> I better like talk to this guy some more and see if I can get myself out of this situation. And the other thing that he's very afraid of is Caesar. And you see, even though he doesn't care about the Jews, doesn't care what they think, they know that he's afraid of Caesar. And so they keep saying, he claimed to be king. He's offended Caesar, Pilate. You have to do something. Pilate could care less that he blasphemed against God in the Jews' understanding. But if he set himself up as a rival to Caesar, Pilate, and you don't do something about it, what do you think Caesar is going to think about this? So, but he's also afraid of Herod. The other Gospels bring this in. We don't have time to read that. He's very afraid, Pilate is very afraid that the Jews are going to riot. If the Jews riot, Herod, who's kind of over Pilate, is going to be very upset. Now, here's what's fascinating. Here's what's fascinating. Pilate and Herod, we know about them from other historical accounts not in the Bible, not written by Christians, about what kind of people they were. Pilate had very good reason to be afraid of Caesar and of Herod. As a matter of fact, Caesar, once the Caesar at this time, once said about Herod's father, and the son was very much like the father, he once said that Herod's pigs had a greater life expectancy than his children. And he said that because Herod, every time his children came of age and could possibly try to set up a coup to take power from their father, he killed them. Pilate did the same thing. These men had no qualms about doing the wrong thing to keep their power base. 
So what you need to see here when you look at Pilate is he's a weak man who's trying to put on a brave show. He thinks that power comes through force, trying to keep everybody happy, but he doesn't care about what's ultimately true. When he says, what is truth? It's not an honest question. Now if you go to God with that question, and it's an honest question, and you have doubts and struggles that are real, God will never mock you. But not all people who say what is truth actually care to find it. And Pilate is a great example of somebody who uses that sort of kind of pluralism idea to say, I'm not responsible. Who can know what's really true when truth is standing right before him? Not only is truth standing right before him, Jesus, the one with real power, is standing right before him. And you see little bits and pieces in this section. Jesus questions Pilate. Jesus is standing before Pilate, but in verse 34, he says, is that your own idea, Pilate? Or did others talk to you about me? Jesus is clearly not afraid of Pilate. And he's not afraid of Pilate's authority. He says, you don't really have any authority. You're not even really in control here. That's unbelievable that he says that to Pilate. But you know what's even more unbelievable? Jesus' power is so mystifying that Pilate doesn't feel threatened by it. Here's what's astonishing. Jesus, who within three centuries will be the center of the faith that will transform the Roman Empire, is not someone who Pilate perceives as a threat. Though he clearly is. Jesus is very crafty in the way he responds to Pilate. In verse 37, in verse 37, Pilate says, you're a king then. And Jesus answered in an ambiguous way. That's what you say. That's what you say. And then he says, I came into the world to to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate decides, oh, I'm not really interested in this. I just want to figure out a solution that gets me out of hot water. I don't care what happens to you. I really don't. As a matter of fact, later, Pilate makes a political blunder and is removed from office and commits suicide because of it, right? His way of trying to sort of play people off against each other so that he stays in control didn't work, and it never works. Let me tell you, if your way, if your strategy for making life work is trying to sort of keep everybody happy and sort of play different people off against each other, it doesn't work very well. In the end, it leads to misery. But how often do you think we miss Jesus' power because it doesn't look the way we expect it to look? Jesus is the powerful one. He's the one who says, no one takes my life from me. He said this chapters earlier in John's Gospel. No one takes my life from me. I give it up of my own accord. Here, the king of all stands before Pilate Pilate doesn't even know what's going on. He can't make sense of it. But he's trying to get out of it. Next, I want you to see this. The great exchange. And for this, I love Ann Steele's line. 
see spotless innocence appear in guilt's detested place. It's a beautiful picture of the heart of the good news that is the gospel in this great exchange. We are all like Barabbas, the murderer who gets the freedom that Jesus deserves. I mean, Jesus literally takes Barabbas' place. Pilate wants to set Jesus free, but Jesus ends up getting the death that Barabbas deserved for being a revolutionary, for leading a revolt against the Romans. Jesus wasn't leading a revolt against the Romans, but he gets crucified as one who was leading a revolt, as a rival to Caesar. Barabbas is let free. But you know what? They can find an army and go track down Barabbas again. They're not going to know what to do when Jesus comes back from the dead. But that's the great exchange that is the gospel. The punishment that the real revolutionary deserves, Jesus takes. And the freedom that Barabbas gets, Jesus should have had. Do you see that, the exchange? This is what Christianity is all about. Jesus dying in the place of people who don't deserve it. And when Christians talk about putting your faith in Jesus, what we literally mean is saying, God... I no longer will look to myself and my accomplishments for my relationship with you. Instead, give me your grace to trust in what you did in my place. Change my heart to go from trusting me to trusting in what you did. This great exchange is the good news. Do you understand? Do you know Jesus as the great exchange for you. You see, so often, we are like this crowd. Some of the girls were looking at uh, Isaiah 53 last night in the Bible study at my house. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah writing about this scene, says about Jesus the Messiah that we esteemed Him not. That means we didn't consider Him valuable or weighty. I remember one time talking to a student who was kind of at at a crisis in her life, and I remember as I was talking to her saying, this is what you know you need to do, but this is what's tempting you. And I, it was almost like I could just see like a scale. And you've got Jesus here, and you've got this other situation, this boy over here, and it was like Jesus is of no weight. And I knew what was going to happen and what was going to be decided. What does it mean to esteem Jesus not, to consider Him not weighty. What are the things that you think are more weighty than Jesus? That's when we choose Barabbas over Jesus. When we say, set him free, but I don't want to have to deal with Jesus. He's let me down. He's disappointed me. But Jesus is the powerful one who looks like the poster boy for weakness and defeat. In chapter 19, verse 5, you know, right after Jesus has him beat, he has the crown of thorns put on him, and they're long thorns, right? They're not like little, little sticker bushes. But he has this, this, he's beaten to a pulp. Isaiah 53 says that he was so disfigured that men hid their face from him and couldn't look on him, that he didn't even have the appearance of a man anymore. That's what's going on here. 
Pilate holds him up, this one who doesn't even look human. He's been so beaten. And says, here is the man. Again, mocking them. Here's your king. He was the king. And in this scene where it looked like he was ultimate weakness, he is the most powerful one there. But he uses his power to take the place of suffering. The man of power. The power to become weak. Jesus, the king of the Jews. Let's gaze upon Jesus, the king of the Jews. Again, Pilate means this as an insult. And he loves that it's upset the Jews. But Pilate prophesies about who Jesus really is without even knowing it, without even intending it. God uses Pilate's actions to proclaim to the whole world in the three languages that would have gotten everybody, Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, so that everybody walking by would see this is the king of the Jews. Pilate did that. The first evangelist testifying to Jesus crucified is a guy who doesn't believe in him and doesn't care at all about truth. And here we get the supreme example of the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. What I mean is this. If you had been there, you would have concluded that Jesus had been abandoned by God and that everything He worked for had ended in spectacular disaster. But you would have been absolutely wrong. Because what the cross teaches us is that when it looks like God is not working at all, that's when He's doing His most powerful work. And that's not just true about the cross. It's true about your life. It's true about your life. And it's so important. You really can can basically understand a relationship with God as a theology of glory where if I really love Him and I really do all the right things, then life is going to turn out the way I like it. A lot of people that think that's what Christianity is about. Or you can understand it the way John wants you to understand it in his gospel. That the heart of what Christianity is, is when it looks like God is not working, he's doing his greatest work, according to the scriptures, according to God's plan. It looks like God's plan has come undone. But John keeps reminding us it was according to the scripture, so that the scripture would be filled. This is God's plan. And it's happening just as God intended. When it looks like God is not working at all, He's doing His most powerful work. That's hard for us to believe. We live in a country where everybody thinks that success is what makes life worth living. Everybody tells you that the most important things that you'll ever learn, that the most character-shaping things that you'll ever experience are usually revolve around suffering, but nobody wants that. We all want to be about success and about triumph, and the cross stands right in front of us and says, it's not the way. It's not the way I work. This is the way I work. When it looks like he's being defeated and publicly shamed, he's actually shaming the powers and the principalities. Colossians 2 says that. And again, it's according to the Scripture. And as we draw this to a close, I want you to see that. The thing that was just made no sense at all, it's only after 
the disciples experience Jesus resurrected that they have to change all their categories for what is, what is Jesus' kingdom all about? What is his power all about? Oh yeah, he said whoever wants to find his life has to lose it. Whoever wants to keep his life will lose it. All these things that we're like, what in the world is he talking about? I get it. I get it. It's about the cross. Gaze upon Jesus. He suffers on the cross as we close. He's the humble one who allows him to cast lots for his clothing. He remains fully engaged and present in the moment. You know, it says here that he drinks this wine vinegar. Do you know that that was for? That was not something you gave people when they were thirsty. That was something you gave people as a stimulant when it seemed like they were fading so that they would wake up and endure and be present in the midst of suffering. Jesus takes the stimulant. In the other Gospels we find that he doesn't take the sedative. In the other Gospels they record that he was offered a sedative that would have dulled his senses and dulled the pain, but Jesus was fully alive to the suffering. Do you know why that's important? Because there are times when you will feel like there's no way God could forgive me for what I've done. There's no way. Oh, he might be able to forgive me like if he didn't really know the full heart of what was going on. But Jesus was fully alive to the intensity of what he was suffering. And that answers your fear that you can out his grace. Do you understand? Jesus did not check out. Jesus did not go halfway into the suffering. He took the stimulant to wake up and be fully alive as he died on the cross for our sin. And he's in control the whole time. No one takes his life. He gives it up and finishes the work he came to do. When he says it is finished, it's an interesting word. It's only one word in the Greek. It's a one word shout. The English only captures part of it. It's not a cry of defeat like, oh, finally it's over. It's not just an announcement like, I'm done. It's a word that's used of completing a task. I finished the work I came to do. That's the good news. That Jesus did everything required for us to be reunited with His Father. The significance of a finished salvation. You know, most of our spiritual problems come from not believing that Jesus did enough. We just wonder, well, I know that he died on the cross, but I know that I've got to be really sad about my sin too. No, Jesus did enough. He finished the work. The Holy Spirit applies the work to us, but Jesus finished the work. He did all the dying for your sin. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, do not make your own suffering a rival for the suffering of Christ. Have you ever thought about it? Sometimes we can get so caught up in our own suffering. Now, again, not to make light of suffering. But sometimes you can even become a bit self-righteous, feeling like, I've suffered so much, God owes me. God does not owe you because you've suffered. But if your faith is in Christ, God 
will grant you life and peace because Jesus earned it for you by going to the cross, staying on the cross, even though he had every opportunity to check out and to end it. Why do they pierce his side? Make sure he's really dead. When they do that, it shows us that he's a real man. You know, there are some who don't believe that God could really die. You know what Islam thinks about this story. The Koran, written five centuries later, says that God would never let Jesus die. And so God actually switched a guy in the crowd with Jesus. They looked, you know, he, he made them look like each other, but that was sort of like sort of a, a divine magic trick. But the Gospels are very clear. The people that were there are very clear. Jesus died as a real man. When John was writing this gospel at the end of the first century, there was a teaching that was beginning to creep up in Christian circles that Jesus was more of a ghost, sort of a spiritual man who sort of was above the fray and not touched by physical suffering. And John makes sure to say, and that's why he emphasizes, I was there. The one who was there testifies the truth. I saw them plunge the spear into his side. He was so dead that his body had already started to sort of separate the water and the blood, and they came out. He was a real man, and he really died. I can testify to it. I was there. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't just some sort of spiritual being. He really died as a real man. I don't know how to explain it, because he was God, and three days later, he rose from the dead. But all I can tell you is, I was there. He died as a real man. And then they lay him in the tomb. You know, one of my favorite sermons ever is by this guy, Tony Campolo, who um, has this amazing sermon called, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I was, I was chatting with a, a guy I met at the conference this past weekend who's good friends with Tony. Tony's, um, man, he's, he's pretty old now and has been, you know, in some poor health lately. But he was, uh, we were just reminiscing about some of his uh, great talks over the years. When I was your age, he was like big popular youth speaker. You'd go hear him. And he had this great sermon where he talked about going into this black Baptist preach, uh, church, and they were basically going to have different preachers get up one after the other, just kind of have a preaching festival all day. And Tony says he gets up there and he preaches like his greatest sermon ever. And he kind of looks sort of smug back at this old black preacher as he sits down, kind of like, yep, yep. And, and the, the, he said the black preacher looks over and he goes, now son, that was good, but you sit back and you watch. And Tony says he just started, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, Jesus is in the tomb, the soldiers have taken his garments, his disciples have fled, all hope is gone. But it's Friday, Sunday's coming. That's where we live. It's Friday, Sunday's coming. Not just the Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus, but even the resurrection of Jesus, Paul tells us, is the first fruits of the resurrection and the restoration of all things. And while, yes, we're going to talk next week about the resurrection, in very real ways, where we live, what we call the already and the not yet, Jesus has already risen. But it's Friday. Sunday's coming. The fullness of what God has planned is coming. And we'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of what's coming next week. Let's pray together.